0: time feels very full that we've had together i feel pleased to have been a, have been and to be a part of something so auspicious We might not think of it that way, sometimes feeling uh, knocked around by this mad mind, but perhaps tasting some tranquility. Perhaps having recognized reservoirs of patience in ourselves we didn't know I had, we had. Perhaps moments of realizing it's possible for us to enjoy utter simplicity. Just standing, breathing, listening. How do you value that? What I mean is that's extraordinarily precious. I spent a year, I spent two years in in silence, but I spent one, the first year I spent in silent retreat, I'd been a monk for 13 years. I just been the abbot of a modest, small little monastery in the west of England in the county of Devon, seeing a lot of people, doing a lot of teaching, still working with the residue of a long-term illness that I think I alluded to. Still exhausted so much of the time in those days, but enjoying practicing and sharing where I could. And my, uh, the teacher was uh, quite pleased with the time I, I had uh, done there, but he realized still I was unwell and he thought, well, maybe you'd like to do a long retreat. And I said, th- yes, I love, I love retreats. So I still wasn't very well, but I did a retreat in a, a little tiny hut in a forest in West Sussex, our monastic forest. And it sounds really kind of crazy, but I mean, I had tried so many different medical things, this and that. I, I had—I was the been to all kind of hospital stuff, and and I was when people would come, to the scores of different healers would come to the monastery, and, and I was looking really sick in those days, and um, and so I got offered all these different treatments. uh, Which was uh, uh, wonderful, but I still was quite ill. Perhaps it helped keep me alive. A lot of exhaustion, uh, still some internal bleeding, uh, weakness. But I'd had so many different kind of treatments. When I had the chance to just be in the hut in the forest, I just thought, you know, I don't want any special treatments. I just wanted to be able to meditate. So I was in this tiny hut. Is maybe two yards by two meters, two yards by maybe a yard and a half. It's a tiny little hut. It was uh, England. Didn't have any heat. Didn't really want any, but I would allow myself to light uh, some candles at night, and uh, I did have warm sleeping bags. Uh, And there were times when it was uh, was so cold that the water inside my hut would freeze. But what really struck me was when I was really practicing learning to enjoy simple things. The beauty when the sun came up. The colors in the leaves. When they would fall, they would adorn my, my shrine that would be my offering, the gratitude I had that I had a path, that I I had been reminded that that it's precious to notice things, to receive things, to savor things, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, to investigate. And I felt so full. Even though I struggled a lot with uh, illness, still in my own, I have a very driving mind, so I pushed myself quite hard. You know, I still suffered with that a lot, but I was even interested in that. So there was so much joy in that time. Even if one has so little, tiny little shelter, had a meal a day, had some robes, when we practice contentment, practice enjoying, being able to receive and savor and be with simple things, we're very, there's abundance. We have a wealth of treasure. And we have so many things, and maybe even so much money, and this and that. If, if if we haven't cultivated, or have a sense for how to cultivate, appreciation, being with a breath, a step, a feeling, a pain, then we're just perpetually a hungry ghost. Trying to take more and more in, but it, just, it nothing satisfies us. We're being moved by just habitual tendencies, by the hungry ghost. When we practice, when we're being taking refuge in Sangha, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, we're being moved. Sangha is that which moves us, learning to befriend the skillful we're then being moved by the Holy Ghost. By this mysterious spirit of Dharma. This, it's not just chaos. There's a, a mysterious lawfulness in this cosmos. It's not just the universe, it's also spirit and consciousness. And there's a rising and ceasing... Unfolding according to the Dharma, according to the laws. When we practice in the way that we're practicing, we're learning to be moved by, to 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 flow with the natural flow. So naturally, now we're, we're thinking, you know, how to apply this, and yes as we get toward the ending of the retreat this has been artificial is artificial to the extent that you know we have a we're creating in other words it's being constructed i don't mean that in a negative sense it's been constructed the silence the schedule the sitting the guidance Yes, that has been set up, and then when that finishes, yeah, there'll be a lot of change. And we can think, oh, but how, how does this apply? But what we've been cultivating, those principles, that what I call primary relationship, learning to cultivate a relationship with embodiment, with a breath, with a step, with a touch, with a recognition of posture. That's wherever you are, wherever you're going, your body will be there. You can align with it in a moment. All these practices that, yes, it will take some creativity, some so be the, this is the advanced course as we, we move out into our daily life. But to remember, reconnect with this, this principle that we'll, we can be a dear friend wherever we are, befriending mindfulness of the body, using training little by little our thoughts. Remember, rather than just thinking and getting lost in thoughts, we can use the thought to remind us how is it now. It's like this now, having moments of honoring how it is at home, at work, when we're traveling, when we're doing whatever activity is, when we're miserable. How is it now? Breathing in and out, just reviewing, you know, moments of steadying, calming even enjoying moments of being at ease, being filled with, savoring. Moments then of investigating, insightfully, seeing where there's this clinging, opening to the suffering, reminding ourselves to be willing to be with that. And maybe having the opportunity to notice Um, notice the resistance. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be. It's not going right. I've forgotten everything. I haven't accomplished anything. And in a moment of allowing, we might notice that we're not so much carrying it, not so much pushing it away, letting it be what it is. And then it becomes from being me, being a hopeless case, or me being absolutely lost, it becomes, ah... Just becomes dharma, a mood. A, I know you. And in a moment, we can have the feeling of of release. <laughs> These last few days, we've been we've, we've been talking about. Uh, Focusing a lot on wisdom, and that wisdom overcomes all conditions and sees into and reveals the spaciousness and freedom within conditions and this awakening to this sky-like, unmoving, peaceful essence, wisdom. We've been also talking some today about compassion, being kind. And then it can it can really sound like oh, wisdom, compassion. Wow, we've left it quite late. That's what I really need, Oh, dear. I'm gonna. Shouldn't there be a follow up? You know, at least optional. Uh, but let's don't be con- let's don't be confused. The different words make them sound so different, but they're deeply related. and, uh, and a lot of our wisdom practice has been supported by an encouragement throughout to be allowing and kind and open. The two work together. There's a a saying from a great sage called Sri Nisargadatta that Tanisha and I like to remember frequently and to share on our retreats. He said, wisdom says I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between these two banks, the life of the awakened one flows. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Compassion says I'm everything. between these two banks, the life of the awakened one flows. We've been training ourselves to steady, relating to body, to moments, to present, as we do that and then inquire, noticing, just like now, my voice resonating, bubbling, dissolving, all the spaces, the silence surrounding the sounds and our breath vibrating, our heart pulsing, our thoughts coming and going, the sensations of our body. We realize not graspable, suffering if we do grasp, not self in that, not a thing there's the possibility of waking up to the spaciousness. That wisdom seeing into it liberates us. Now we can stop there, but it's not we're not it's not full. Because we, we've truly tasted peace when we let go, and we can associate the suffering so much with seeing and hearing. And there even can be a name for the peace, we can call it the deathless. The peaceful, the beautiful, and that's the conditioned stuff. If we're not careful, we're bound to do it at first, but just be alert to it. Because we even have different terms for it, the peace and the suffering. We'll keep wanting to go to the peace, and we can just associate suffering with all this contact stuff. And just try to stay in the peace. in that emptiness. But there's still a version there, or still not really being... And that's when the, we need to be balanced. And remember this heart not only can hold and let go, but this heart can also welcome all that which is vibrating, appearing, manifesting within this sky-like empty heart. Compassion says, I'm everything. Wisdom sees that all that I thought was me is not me. We let it go. And then as the boundaries dissolve, where where is this line between me and you? When we're touched by someone, when we feel something for someone, respond to someone, there isn't a big wall there. We allow, we welcome this compassion, this feeling with resonating with, gathers in, gathers in, gathers in. Compassion says, I'm everything. The two take us to the same place, letting go, welcoming. Again, it sounds like two different things. It's one mind. Sorry, Kitty Sorrow, I hate to correct you, but you know, I mean, Ajahn Chai said it. If you let go a little, there's a little peace. If you let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. If you let go completely, there's complete peace. Not to disturb you, Kitty Sorrow. <laughs> if we only just let go, it's not just a one-fold path. <laughs> That's called Paralysis. Yes, letting go is really helpful, but when we notice our letting go, it has been clouded or it's shrouding or keeping at bay, it's very important to remember this, this heart also can welcome, be well with what comes and goes. And then sometimes when we're being so well with comes and goes, that easily can turn into attachment. And when we grip on stuff, we'll know pretty soon because when it shifts and changes, we feel like we're being rocked around, like we're riding a bronco. And we, Therefore... John Cha gave the lovely image. He said, when he's behind his disciples, and if they're walking down the road and getting near the ditch on the left, he'll say, Go right. And the diligent disciple writes down, Master says, Go right. <laughs> and then he notices some getting near the, the ditch on the right side of the road, and he'll say, Go left. And some more diligent disciples write down, Master says, go left. And they start arguing with each other. He said this, he said that. It's the middle way. When we make contact, we can sense in this this practice, we're learning and this basic, wow, This basic building block is this primary relationship that took a lot of kindness these first few days, too. But just to direct the mind, steady, connect, be there, being patient with all the obstructions, kind with all of that. Then with that steadiness, looking into the changes, Oh, then realizing there's nothing to grasp, practicing letting go, tasting that peace, or getting a sense for that empty spaciousness. We're learning the yoga of the heart, how to hold, investigate, let go, and also to embrace, also to welcome. We'll be focusing on that, too, tomorrow. But it's one mind. sounds like, you know, wisdom, compassion. What does wisdom do? Wisdom, the four ennobling truths that Denis was talking about. What's the first ennobling truth? Opening to the suffering. Only way to, rather than just being ashamed of it, the Buddha encouraged us, this is ennobling. Because it deepens us, deepens our capacity to be with the suffering. What's the word compassion? It means to, passion means to suffer, compassion to suffer with. Even though we call this the wisdom practice, when we're opening to our suffering, we're deepening our capacity to be with suffering. That's, that's the ground of compassion right there in the classic wisdom practice. They, they come out of the same ground. Opening to the suffering and seeing the nature, seeing how we perpetuate it. So when we learn to let go, that's a deeply compassionate gesture, tasting peace. But then also in a moment of letting go and all the barriers between me and you, which we used to construct with our thoughts that we believed in so much, here, there, me, you, good, bad, we start to see the no-thingness of thoughts in those Boundaries start to disappear, and in our field of vision, we're all together. So the irony is the more we let go of our own suffering, the more we are sensitive to each other. We can look at motivations. in our our practice. At first, we might come just to feel a bit better. Fair enough. I read that, you know, blood pressure goes down a bit, rest better, be better at my job. And that's not bad to want to just get a bit, feel a bit better. That's a certain level of motivation. Fair enough. But when we start running into the shadows, the difficulty, the deep-rooted habits, then sometimes we might, if our only motivation is just to feel better, we, we quite likely might think, well, is there anything else out there? It's hard to stay on. When our motivation's a little deeper, something in us is weary. Somehow we know we're running away from this shadow that's following us around that we need to encounter our dukkha, our suffering. It's a deeper level of motivation. Something in us that really is willing to hang in there and and, and open ourselves to the and be humbled, because it's very humbling as we have been experiencing. But when there's a certain level of trust that that this is a crucible, a powerful transformative crucible that it's the secret of the cross, it's how the cross turns into the resurrection when we're staying with the, the craziness the, the moaning, the whining and we're dying we're dying in here in those moments when we really patiently, kindly, wisely hear that dying, we're able to notice a deeper level of ourselves. what remains when the whimpering voices keep rising up and subsiding. That's that resurrection, that recognition of a deeper, that's the change of lineage, Denisse was talking about, our, our true mother, True father, true source is this mysterious, yes, our mother and father give us this body. And that's a profound relationship and debt we have. But when we, that that body is born and dies, but when we hang in there with the suffering, hearing the dying of the mind, we're able to Recognize the ground, the root, the source. When there's that willing, being interested in in working with our suffering that takes us deeper. But then also it's it's really easy to get just you know overwhelmed because the Insights come. There's been some beautiful insights. I love these. Wish I had more energy. I mean, I'm actually quite tired. Um, But I've so enjoyed the small groups and just listening to each person's voice. Have you heard the beauty in that? The wisdom we have within us when people are sharing all these insights? Gives me real hope for possibilities for, for the future, for our future. Just listening, listening to feeling touched when I hear. It's not that difficult to have insights. They they, 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 they come, but there can be a time when we get it feels so impossible, so difficult. that we just don't think we can, we can, we can go on. And then there's a, another dimension of, of our motivation that can really help us. Even when we feel like I don't see the point anymore. When we notice another being that's suffering, that somehow touches us, and we have had that situation sometime, it might be an animal, or a child, a friend, parent, grandparent, brother, sister, just a person. One gets another layer of motivation to to, to bless, to be of help. When our motivation is, is compassion, it gives us more energy and there's more the whole world will work for us. Help us, because our intention is for the welfare of the whole. (laughs) Compassion is a natural flowering, but we can also work on it. It can happen just naturally, but we can also work on it. The blessing of this retreat, would not be here, this place wouldn't be here without big time compassion from our teacher. What was the motivation that Sakyamuni Buddha had? At one point, he recounted to his monks countless, countless lives ago, he, he was practicing for his own peace, which is natural practicing. He met a previous Buddha, a fully enlightened one. And he just saw, wow, this composed, peaceful being that was able to respond, help. Help people, leave behind stress and suffering discover the treasures in our nature. And he had the thought, yes, no, I would, I would like to do that. I would like to be able to awaken like that and be of service. And that, uh, that lifetime after lifetime with that thought, the Buddha to be what's called the Bodhisattva. Bodhi means awakened sattva, means an awakened being committed to awakening all being. Deepening the awakening, not just stopping with peace, but deepening the awakening to include everyone. Because guess what? Once we have a moment of really insight of things not belonging to us and the barriers dissolve, we realize, wow, we're all in this together. Where are the boundaries here? So the Bodhisattva came back again and again cultivating patience and kindness and truthfulness and effort and equanimity, renunciation, all these different virtues. These four ennobling truths blossom when we start opening to my suffering and this and that, when we investigate it, see it for what it is, let go and taste peace, when the heart opening opens, that can grow into, wow, countless beings suffer. I resolve to help them all, to liberate them all, what an incredible thought. What a noble thought to I suffer, I can taste the end of suffering. Countless beings just like me. That was the intention. Without that intention, we wouldn't be having this retreat. Because we're, we're riding the blessings of the awakened one. As we open to our own suffering and notice that second ennobling truth, how we feed suffering, we perpetuate it by the, the, the affliction of grasping, looking for certainty where we can't find it, through grasping, through rejecting, through compulsive becoming, always trying to get somewhere and never being able to rest. That second ennobling truth flowers into, when compassion occurs, flowers into a great bodhisattva intention. Afflictions, greed, hatred, and delusion, afflictions are inexhaustible. I resolve to cut through them all. We're working with our own stuff, and it's my stuff, but then when we start seeing that it's just stuff, then then in moments we can get the feeling for whether it's my stuff or your stuff, whatever we encounter, we're just working with the affliction of greed, hatred, and delusion, little by little learning to abandon that, let that go. the fourth truth, which is the path that leads us out of suffering, becomes the third bodhisattva vow. Dharma doors are innumerable. I resolve, I vow to cultivate them all. We've been offering different Dharma doors. We could just say, you've got to do it like this, watch the breath, only at the nostrils, don't do it that other way. Get in trouble, do it if you get down in the belly, it's not very good. Then those down, <laughs> down in the belly say, no, stay in the belly. If you get up at the nose, you might drop into bliss. I haven't noticed that's a big problem. <laughs> but some do it here, some do it there. They're different Dharma doors. We've been offering, the Buddha taught different skillful means. Recitations is a dharma door. Being with the breathing is a dharma door. Contemplating the principles of the teaching are a dharma door. Kindness is a dharma door. Turning the mind to the deathless is a dharma. There's countless. Yes, we'll have some that we're better at. That's good. Learn to find what works for us. Develop that. But being willing to also work sometimes on things you feel terrible at you're not very good at. Gives us more agility in time and also allows us to be able to respond. When our heart is more empty and sensitive and open and we meet someone, then then we can then respond with what is needed. The bodhisattva, or when compassion becomes stronger, we're interested in just cultivating all the different Dharma doors patiently in time. Dharma doors are innumerable. I resolve to cultivate them all. That's the third great awesome thought. And then the fourth is, remember, the third noble truth is about ending of suffering needs to be tasted by each of us. Well, the fourth great bodhisattva vow is the, the unsurpassed awakening. Buddhahood is unsurpassed. I, I resolve to realize it. That might sound like, oh gosh. Chris I'm just having getting through the hard time getting through the day that's a bit much but just to touch into that this is the the blessing this intentions what's blessed us now and something that the, the 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 buddha taught sounds difficult but he just said in one of his last discourses called the lotus sutra he said Full awakening is your destiny. Buddhahood, full awakening. That will happen. You've already set the karmic wheels in motion because it's our nature. What's little by little falling away is just these false assumptions we have as we imagine we're just this little speck. Wisdom says I'm not a thing. As we start Getting perspective on these opinions about ourselves and others, as we start to recognize there are things moving through the heart like clouds through the sky, we get the sense for our vastness again. And the Buddha with confidence could give a prophecy and say, no, no, this is where we're going. Our Chinese master, teacher, Master Shunhua. He has a a saying that he regularly uh, spoke that, again, Tanisha and I really love remembering it. It relates to this. It goes like this. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My nature is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are my function. You say, wow, who's he talking about? He's talking about you. And me, this is what we're growing into. This is, as Tanisra was saying, the great, the Buddhas are not just, they're not the beings of the past. They're reminding us what we're flowering into. All living beings are my family. Actually, when we really start to look into things, in this one heart of ours, we're all arising and dissolving, coming back into. The universe Is our body. Wherever we are, all of space is my university. Little by little, we keep remembering wherever we happen to be. That's where we learn. When we go home, when we're in all these different situations, a moment, how is it now? Ah, this is my university. This is my practice. This is where I can learn. My nature is truly empty, And the more empty we get, we might think, oh, gosh, will we just stop there and end up like some doorstop? We can be really worried. we we'll just become dysfunctional. But actually, the more empty we become, the more able to respond with kindness. The seed of kindness that uh, I'm very grateful our Western teacher uh, taught us is this willingness to allow. This is very helpful as we're starting to think about going home. I wouldn't be too worried about distractions and things like that now, Whatever comes up, I encourage a willingness to allow, to allow as images of our home or where we're going next, or who's in our life, just to allow with a friendliness. It's not pretending to like. But giving space to, so even if someone you don't like, you can still invite them to tea. You don't have to pretend to like their views or like their manners, but one can still make a place. Still, not ha- not try to harm. Make a place. So this abiding of kindness right now is is opening to whatever the bodily feelings are whatever the concerns are. Compassion says I'm everything. Kindness and compassion, this willingness to be with in a friendly way. This is the other side of that powerful I am nothing, seeing change and letting go, opening to the heart. This open heart is what can allow things to arise and cease and realize that there's kinship. When we realize we all are dissolving back into the same heart, that helps us sense our kinship. Just as the Buddha said, one moment of realizing change is immensely powerful, auspicious. Similarly, he said, even a finger snap of practicing kindness He said, if one of my monks even does it for a finger snap, they are following the master's advice. They can call themselves a bhikkhu. How much more so when we make much of this. So this kindness of opening to allowing, it dissolves separation. We're going to encounter... Our tendencies, insights, uh, at least in my life, weren't that uh, difficult to have. But what I didn't count on was how deep-rooted some of our obstructions are, what the Buddha called the old sankharas. We don't, I'm not sure where it comes from, Tanisha is not sure, but there's an image uh, that some are like lines drawn in water. They're there and they're gone. Some of our tendencies we've been able to see, a little restlessness or a, uh, an irritation that we work with it, and it shifts. And it's there and it's gone. Some are like lines drawn in sand. And we've experienced on this retreat some that have really been a bit deeper, but we've been patient with them a preoccupation, a uh, difficulty with a certain pain, a certain memory that's kind of bugging us. And like lines drawn in sand, we've we've noticed that it can smooth out. But some of our sankars are like lines drawn in stone. They're deep-rooted. Who knows where they've come from? Decades or who knows, maybe even lifetimes. These lines drawn in stone. These, each of us has them. In the privacy of our practice, the and we we've we've shared some of it in our groups. The tyrannical judging mind, the the uh, the jealousy the pettiness, the passion, the the, the lust that can sweep us away, the deep-rooted tendencies just not to want to be here, the difficult ones. And these we can't just bulldoze through. I had deep root, deep rooted uh, competitiveness, wanting to be the best and which is not bad to work hard. but how long can you go around with your hand being held up as a as a victor yeah. and, and, and that and you know that that's just a memory, and yet those tendencies, that mind, my mind could make everything I do not good enough, having to be patient. And kind, the Buddha taught that this kindness helps soften in going back into our life with ourselves and each other, being kind, and that kindness is is deeply transformative the Almost iconic story in my life of the power of kindness, which is, I've told the story so many times, but when I was a monk as a prison chaplain, I'd go to different places of, and meet prisoners who wanted to learn about meditation. And I went down to, a, at the time, I think a pretty high security prison in Devon on the Dartmoor in Princetown called Dartmoor Prison. And I had a security clearance, but you know, you have to go through all the barbed wire and the big stone walls and the guards were pretty intimidating. And At this particular prison the prisoners weren't allowed to meet in groups and there wasn't even a, a provision for those interested in meditation but there was another monk that had finally allowed prisoners to do that and so they made an exception to let some prisoners meet together which was before considered a security risk but they let them meet together. Because it was the Buddha's birthday, it was near the full moon of May, and I as a monk was coming in to see them. And so I went in and uh, was guided in by the guards. Uh, they didn't look at me that respectfully, but there it is. And uh, guided in and we sat down and the, um, there was about a dozen of us in the room, a bit of a dingy room. And I was, uh, did some introductions. I was a little, you know, in my shaved head, in my robe. And uh, uh, kind of getting a, f- a few names. Um, and meanwhile, the guards started, they thought I was Hare Krishna. <laughs> and so they started heckling us. So we had this heckling going on and something to the effect of, hey, Harry, have you seen Larry? What about Barry? And uh, need any shampoo in there? You know, stuff. I can't remember the exact words, but it was obviously heckling. And, you know, um, so, and I was, you know, not quite sure what to do with this room full of prisoners and heckling guards, so I said, um... Why don't we do some uh, meta-meditation, some kindness meditation? <laughs> and the guy on my right, uh, Arthur, he said, I don't have any kindness. I would break his neck again if I had the chance. <laughs> he was in for Murder. And I was thinking, this is really skipping along nicely. (laughs) Um, But I maintained composure. And I said, Arthur, we're not trying to pretend that we like what these uh, guards are doing or that you have to convince yourself you have compassion. I said, "What, what we're practicing here is just to allow your conviction that you would break his neck again if you had the chance. The, whatever reactions you're having, we're having to these guards heckling us, opening to that, allowing that, <coughs> the feeling in our body, this kind of dingy room that we see each other and we haven't been in a group before, allowing, welcoming, the heck, heckling and our reaction to it, allowing, welcoming. It is like this not adding to any aversion. If aversion's there, we notice it, allow it, welcoming it. And as we did that, it was uh, one of the most beautiful, powerful things. It's What I would uh, call a meltdown a, 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 in that crucible of practice. And Arthur started crying. And we started getting wider and bigger and hearing Arthur's crying, and being kind, and the heckles. And we just got
1: wide,
0: big mind. It was amazing. And we weren't in prison. We weren't imprisoned. Yes, the walls appeared within the heart, and the sense of these other the big, but uh, that we were not imprisoned. We were wide. Everybody felt it in our group. And there was even got quiet outside eventually. As we walked out, we felt for the, the, at that, of course I don't know, but I think the guards were more locked up than we were. kindness. It's going to be really good friend. All the tools we've been using, but also whatever's happening, the willingness to allow to be with. We'll we'll, we'll work on it tomorrow and you'll see all the work we've done. We'll bless this work. They go together. Kindness and patience. Because these lines drawn in stone. It's patience. And after I had my, you know, early insights and was figuring I'd get enlightened in a in a year and then go back and live happily ever after, and then, you know, it just, I started really getting discouraged. Then I started getting sick as a monk. And I had diarrhea for six months, and then I had started urinating blood after I got bit by a centipede. And then my mind, all my mind could think of was was uh, the next meal and I would try to want to be mindful and, uh, the next thing I would notice I'd eat in this big bowl and then feel like a beached whale and then vow never again, never again will I do that and then I would keep getting lost in lust, I just, all I could see was all my negative tendencies. And then someone who wanted to be a champion. When I would sit there on the monks' rows, I would look up, just bald heads in robes. I'd look down the line, more bald heads. (laughs) Just another bald head. (laughs) And then, and then just feeling hating myself for my lust and my competitiveness and my. So I really started getting depressed and uh, feeling it was impossible, just impossible. And I got so depressed that I really was convinced I would never, it felt like I would never laugh again. So I um, asked the uh, Western abbot, uh, I need to talk to Ajahn Chah, the uh, master. And and he, he could speak Laotian and Thai so well, I knew he could help me translate. So he took me over to see Ajahn Chah and where everyone else went to the chanting uh, Ajahn Chah. I met Ajahn Chah in his hut. The hut's on stilts to keep away from the insects, but below it, there's an open air place where he could receive guests, he sat in his wicker chair. and. Uh, And so we came in and we bowed and Ajahn Chah said, been young. Like, well, what is it? <laughs> and um, and I said, Ajahn Chah, it really feels like I'm never going to laugh again because it's just, uh, you know, I'm filled with uh, lust and I'm just all I can think about is eating and then sexual desire and, you uh, I'm just uh, not getting anywhere and, and he asked me about my past, and so I told him about all the wrestling, all the competitiveness. And uh, he was sitting in his chair, looking, and he just said, hmm. He says, you remind me of a, a chipmunk or a, a squirrel. It's like some kind of creature that can climb the trees. And so Babagro whispers, he says, you remind him of a ch- squirrel. <laughs> I said, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> Not just a squirrel, but a baby squirrel.
1: <laughs>
0: and he said, and this baby squirrel saw its mother running up the tree and jumping from branch to branch and doing all this incredible stuff. And this uh, baby thought, that's for me. And so it, it, it ran up and leaped and, dog, that's the word in Thai for it, fell down and started crying. And Ajahn Chah said, and then the mother said, son, you need to go to school. So meanwhile, you know, Papa goes whispering to me about this baby squirrel crying, (laughs) needs to go to school. So this baby squirrel goes to kindergarten, first grade, starts learning a few tricks and runs and jumps on a branch, whoa, that's pretty amazing, and then dog falls down and crying. And... And when when it would fall down, it was almost like Ajahn Chah's eyes would kind of go around like that. He was looking down at me, and I was looking up at him. So anyway, he had this baby squirrel going to kindergarten, first grade, second grade. It was really going through school, and it kept falling down. And somewhere in high school or college, I don't know, I started rolling on his floor in hysterical laughter, just kind of... Just killing myself, just laughing.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, he's
0: just still going, you know. And, and so I think I rallied myself when this chipmunk was getting, or squirrel was getting a PhD, you know, and, and you know, he, he, he kept going. And then, uh, you know, I kind of got up there and was able to look at him. And he said, in one day, he said, you know what? That squirrel could do every single thing its mother could do. It could jump and run and go up there. <laughs> and I just felt from the crown of my head down to the soles of my feet. I felt, yeah, yeah, and just, yeah, taking it all too seriously, kitty Oh, you fall down, you keep getting up, and, and I just was glowing, and then he says something in time. Papakura says, oh, he says, you also reminded me of a donkey.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm just thinking, wait a minute. Let's get back to that, that squirrel. You might have misheard that. And he said, no, 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 this is not, a, it's not an ordinary donkey. It was quite a clever donkey. And this donkey is listening to the sounds in the forest that the cicadas make, this beautiful music, and this donkey thinks, I'm going to make music. Because it was clever, the donkey thought, let's do some research first. So he started studying the dietary habits (laughs) of the cicadas, and noticed, because he was an insightful donkey, that they're licking dewdrops, they're eating dewdrops, and so this donkey thought, all right, I've got it. And so he licked 10... 20 hundreds, thousands of two drums. He was excited. And he prepared to make music.
1: <laughs>
0: and he opened his mouth. And the donkey got very disappointed. <laughs> and then he ended the story and then I'm thinking, why did he tell me that? <laughs> now, with the encouragement of Tanishra over the years, I used to block that story out.
1: <laughs>
0: she resurrected the donkey. And I now am beginning to realize Yes, the learning, like the baby squirrel, is very important. We learn, we practice, and we'll do, we will, we will learn. it. it is our destiny, patience. And falling down, getting up, falling down, that's how it goes. But you know, there's a lot of self-aversion in a lot of us. Suddenly I have this big dose. This donkey was so thinking I had to become somebody else. And I'm beginning to think this donkey needs to learn to appreciate his voice. We all need to, that we grow out of, through this being, this body, this mind, our tendencies, and we find our sound little by little, patiently, wisely, but also kindly. Wisdom and compassion balance each other. They're the two wings of awakening, investigating, letting go, and embracing. So take heart. We're being blessed by the great wisdom and compassion of the wise ones. And we can again and again do this practice. And our practice will also bless our family, our ancestors, our friends, children, grandchildren, our world, our earth. Because everything comes back to one heart. May the blessings of our lives be shared with all beings, without exception,
1: above, below, and all around. OM MANI